she sat silently shivering, and at length drew her cloak back around her. Go on, Caramon said grimly. I think I see where this is heading. Kitiara's son was among the first Ariakan sought. I must admit he is shrewd, is Ariakan. He knew exactly how to handle steel. Ariakan spoke to the boy man to man. He told him he would teach him to be a mighty warrior, a leader of legions. He promised steel glory, riches, power. Steel was entranced. He agreed that night to go with Ariakan. Nothing I said or did, no tears I shed, moved steel. I won only one concession, that I could come with him. Ariakan agreed to this only because he figured I could be useful to him. He would need someone to cook for the boys, mend their clothes, clean up after them. That— And he took a fancy to me, Sarah finished softly. Yes, she added, partly ashamed, partly defiant. I became his mistress. I was his mistress many years until I grew too old to please him any more. Caramon's face darkened. I understand, said Tika, patting the woman's hand. You sacrificed yourself for your son, to be near him. That was the only reason, I swear to you, Sarah cried passionately. I hate them and what they stand for. I hate Ariakin. You don't know what I have endured. Many times I wanted to kill myself. Death would have been far easier. But I couldn't leave Steele. There is good in him still, though they've done all they could to trample out the spark. He loves me and respects me for one thing. Ariakin would have rid himself of me long ago, but for Steele. My son has protected me and defended me to his own detriment, though he never speaks of it. He has watched others rise to knighthood ahead of him. Ariakin has held Steele back. All because of me. Steele is loyal. He is honorable, like his father. Both to a fault, perhaps. For as he is loyal to me, so he is loyal to them. His life is bound up in this evil knighthood. And at last he has been offered the chance to become one of them. In three nights' time, Steele Brightblade will swear the oath, make his vows, and give his soul to the Queen of Darkness. This is why I have come to you, why I have risked my life. For if Ariakin discovers what I've done, he will kill me. Not even my son will be able to stop him. Faith, my lady, said Caramon, troubled. What do you want me to do? Give you refuge? That is easily handled. No, said Sarah. Timidly, she touched Caramon's hand. I want you to stop my son, your nephew, from taking the vows. He is the soul of honor, though that soul is dark. You must convince him that he's making a terrible mistake. Caramon stared at her in astonishment. If you, his mother, a woman he loves, haven't been able to change him all these years, what can I do? An uncle he never knew, a stranger, he won't listen to me. Not to you, Sarah agreed. But he might listen to his father. His father's dead, my lady. I've heard that the body of Sturm Brightblade is enshrined in the High Clarist's Tower. I've heard it said that the body possesses miraculous holy powers. Surely the father would reach out to help his son. Well, maybe. Caramon appeared dubious. I've seen some strange things in my life, but I still don't understand. 
What is it you want me to do? I want you to take Steel to the High Clarist's Tower. Caramon's jaw sagged. Just like that. And what if he doesn't want to go? Oh, he won't, Sarah said confidently. You're going to have to use force. Probably take him at sword point. And that won't be easy. He's strong and a skilled warrior. But you can do it. You're a hero of the Lance. Perplexed. Baffled. Caramon gazed at the woman in uncomfortable silence. You must do it, Sarah pleaded, clasping her hands in supplication. Tears slid unheeded down her cheeks. Weariness and fear and sorrow finally overcame her. Or Sturm's son will be lost. Chapter 4 Caramon Tries to Remember Where He Put His Armor Well, said Tika, jumping briskly to her feet, if you two are going to leave before dawn, you'd better get started. What? Caramon stared at his wife. You can't be serious. I most certainly am. But— The boy's your nephew, Tika informed him, hands on her hips. Yes, but— And Sturm was your friend. I know that, but— It's your duty, and that's that, Tika concluded. Now where did we pack away your armor? She eyed him critically. The breastplate won't fit, but the chainmail might. You expect me to go riding a blue dragon into a... a... Caramon looked at Sarah. Fortress, she told him, on an island far to the north, in the Syrian Sea. An island fortress. A secret stronghold filled with legions of dark paladins dedicated to the service of the Dark Queen. And once in this fortress, I'm supposed to snatch up a trained knight in the prime of his life and haul him off to pay a visit to the High Clarist's Tower. And if I even get there alive, which I doubt I'll do, then you expect the Salamnic Knights to just let us stroll in? Me and a knight of evil? Caramon was forced to shout this last. Tika had walked out on him, into the kitchen. If one side doesn't kill me, he bellowed, the other will. Hush, dear, you'll wake the children. Tika returned, carrying a bag, redolent with the odor of roasted meat and a water skin. You'll be hungry by morning. I'll just go fetch you a fresh shirt. You'll have to see to the armor. I remember, it's in the big chest under the bed. And don't worry, dear, she said, stopping to give him a hurried kiss. I'm sure Sarah has devised a way to get you inside the fortress. As for the High Clarist's Tower... Tannis will come up with a plan. Tannis? Caramon regarded her blankly. Well, of course, you're going to pick up Tannis on the way. You can't go alone. You're not in the best of shape. Besides... She glanced at Sarah, who had donned her cloak and was standing impatiently by the door. Tika took hold of her husband's ear and pulled his head down to her level. Kitiara may have lied, she whispered. Tannis may be the real father. He should see the boy. Then, too, she added aloud, as Caramon rubbed his ear, Tannis is the only one who can get you into the High Clarist's Tower. The knights will have to let him inside. They wouldn't dare offend him or Lorana. Tika turned to Sarah with an explanation. Lorana is Tannis's wife. She was one of the leaders of the Knights of Salamnia during the War of the Lance. She is highly revered among them. 
Now she and Tanis are both serving as liaisons between the knights and the elven nations. Her brother, Portheos, is the speaker of the elven nations. To offend either Tanis or Lorana would be tantamount to offending the elves, and the knights would never do such a thing. Would they, Caramon? I suppose. Caramon looked dizzy. Events were happening too fast. Tika knew this was the case, knew how to handle her husband. She had to keep things moving fast. If once he stopped and got to thinking about it, he'd never budge. As it was, she could already see him mulling it over. Maybe we should wait until the boys come back from the plains, he hedged. No time, dear, Tika said, having anticipated this. You know that they always spend a month with Riverwind and Goldmoon going out hunting and learning woodcraft and that sort of thing. Besides, once they set eyes on Goldmoon's beautiful daughters, our boys will be even less anxious to leave. Now off with you. She pushed Caramon, blinking and scratching his head, toward the door that led back to their private chambers. Do you remember how to reach Tannis's castle? Yes, I remember, Caramon snapped quickly. Too quickly. And therefore Tika knew he didn't remember. He was having to think about it, which was good, because that meant he'd be occupied with trying to figure out how to reach Tannis's dwelling for the length of time it would take him to get ready which meant he'd be well on his way before it occurred to him to consider anything else. Like the danger. Once he was out of sight, Tika's briskness evaporated. Her shoulders sagged. Sarah, keeping watch out the window, turned at the sudden silence. Seeing the bleak and unhappy look on Tika's face, Sarah walked over to stand beside her. Thank you for what you've done. I know this can't be easy for you to let him go. I won't say there isn't any danger. That would be lying. But you're right. I have thought of a way to sneak him inside the fortress, and taking Tannis half-elven with us is an excellent idea. I should be used to it, said Tika, clutching the meat sack in her hands. I sent my two boys off yesterday. They're younger than your son— they want to be knights. I smile when I tell them goodbye. I call after them that I'll see them in a week or a month or whatever. And I don't let myself think that I may not, that I may never see them again. But the knowledge is there, in my heart. I understand, said Sarah. I've done it myself. But at least you know your boys are riding in the sunlight. They are not shrouded by darkness. She put her hand to her mouth and choked back a sob. Tika put her arm around her. What if I'm too late? Sarah cried in a low voice. I should have come sooner, but... I never believed he would really go through with it. I always hoped he would give it up. It will be all right, Tika soothed her. It will be all right. Caramon came out of the bedroom. He was draped in chain mail, which fit well over his shoulders, but didn't quite do its job covering his middle. The big man wore an aggrieved expression. You know, Tika, he said solemnly, staring down at the clanking mail with a frown. I don't remember this stuff being this heavy. Chapter 5 Tanis Half-Elven Has an Unpleasant Surprise 
Caramon did finally recall how to reach Tanis's castle, located in Salanthus. But he knew the directions only by traveling overland, not by dragonback. Sarah, however, was familiar with the entire continent of Ancelon. A familiarity Caramon found disquieting. Ariakin has excellent maps, she said in some confusion. Caramon wondered just why the Knights of Tachesis had excellent maps of the continent. Unfortunately, the reason wasn't difficult to guess. The journey took hardly any time at all. Far too little time for Caramon, who sat hunched on the back of the dragon saddle, cold and hungry. He'd long since eaten the meat. All the sleep startled out of him. He was trying to think of how he was going to explain this strange tale to his friend Tanis. And what if Tanis is the father? Caramon mulled the matter over. Am I doing him a favor by springing a son on him? What will Lorana say? She never had any use for Kit, that's for damn sure. And what about Tanis's own son? How will this make him feel? The more he thought about it, the sorrier Caramon was he'd decided to come. At length, he ordered Sarah to turn back, to return him to his inn, but she either couldn't hear him, for the rush of the wind in their ears, or was pointedly ignoring him. He might jump out of the saddle, but from this height, that was out of the question. It did occur to Caramon that he was armed and that he might overpower Sarah, but after giving this some serious thought, he realized that even if he did manage to overpower Sarah— he would never be able to control her blue dragon, which was giving him suspicious looks, as it was. And by the time Caramon had reached this conclusion, they had landed on a hilltop overlooking Tanis's castle. Caramon dismounted from the dragon. It was not yet dawn, but sunrise wasn't far off. Sarah calmed the dragon, left it orders to stay put, or so Caramon assumed, since he couldn't understand what she was saying— then she began walking toward the palatial dwelling. Realizing Caramon wasn't following, she turned to him. What's wrong? she asked anxiously. I'm not sure, Caramon said, considering. Sarah looked frightened, as if she might start to cry again. Caramon sighed. Yes, he said gloomily. I'm coming. Caramon Majere. Of all the lame-brained— Excuse us a moment, will you, mistress? Tanis said politely to Sarah. Grabbing hold of Caramon's arm, the half-elf dragged the big man to the far side of the large, firelit room. This could be a trap, Tanis whispered. Did you ever consider that? Yes, Caramon said. And? Tanis demanded. I don't think it is, Caramon responded after a moment's thought. Tanis sighed. You obviously haven't. I mean, Caramon continued, why would these dark paladins set a trap for me, a middle-aged innkeeper? That doesn't make much sense, does it? No, but... Tanis looked embarrassed. Maybe the trap wasn't meant for you. I know, Caramon said, nodding wisely. You're far more important. But it was Tika who suggested I talk to you, not Sarah. And... He added gravely, after another moment's profound thought... I don't believe Tika's setting a trap for you, Tanis. Well, of course she isn't, Tanis snapped. It's just... All right, so maybe it's not a trap. Maybe I... I don't want... 
He shook his head and started over. I remember that terrible day Kitiara died. She had tried to kill Dalimar, remember? He stopped her. Tanis paused and swallowed. She died in my arms. And then the Death Knight came to claim her. I could hear her voice, pleading with me to save her from that dread fate. Even now, in death, she's reaching out to you, Dalimar told me then. She's still doing it, Caramon. No, she's not, Tanis. This is her son. If you believe that woman, Sarah. Caramon was troubled. Don't you? I don't know what to believe. But you're right. We have to find out the truth and do what we can to help this young man, no matter whose son he is. Besides, it will give me a chance to see what Ariakin is up to. We've heard reports of these dark paladins before now, but we had no way of knowing if they were true or merely rumors. It appears... He glanced grimly at Sarah, a chilling figure in her blue helm and black-trimmed cloak. That they are true. But now... Tanis added with a wry smile and a shake of his head. I have to face the truly difficult task. I have to go tell this to my wife. Tanis spent an hour alone with Lorana. Caramon, pacing the entry hall of the half-elf's mansion, could well imagine the nature of the conversation. Tanis's elven wife, Lorana, knew all about the relationship between Kitiara and her husband. Lorana had been understanding, especially since the affair was over and finished long ago. But what about now, when there was the possibility of a child? A very good possibility, as far as Caramon was concerned. He simply could not bring himself to believe the father was really stern. Yet why would Kit lie? he asked himself. The answer was beyond Caramon. But then he'd never been able to explain why his older half-sister had done half the things she'd done. Tanis came out of the room, his arm around his wife. Lorana was smiling, and Caramon breathed easier. She even paused to say a few whispered words to Sarah, who sat, slumped, weary and exhausted, in a corner near the fireplace. Caramon noted then how young Lorana looked in comparison to her husband, the tragedy of elven-human relationships. Though Tanis had elven blood in his veins, the human blood was growing gray, as the saying went. When the two had wed over twenty years ago, they had looked to be of equal age. Now they could have been father and daughter. But they knew this when they married, Caramon said to himself. They're making the most out of the time they have together, and that's what counts. Tanis was ready to travel almost immediately. As official ambassador and liaison between the Salamnic Knights and the Elven Nations, he spent much of his time on the road, as did his wife. He had donned a suit of leather armor, favored by elves, and a green cloak. Seeing him thus, Caramon was reminded poignantly of their old adventuring days. Perhaps Lorana was thinking the same, for she ruffled the beard that only a half-human elf could grow, and made some teasing comment in Elvish that caused Tanis to smile. He bid his wife farewell. She kissed him gently, and he held her fondly. Then he bid farewell to his son, a frail and weak youth, doted on by both parents, who watched him with anxious, loving eyes. 
The young man was elven through and through, with no trace of his father visible. His complexion was the sickly white of one who rarely steps outside. Not surprising that Tanis and Lorana keep him locked in a cage like a baby bird, Caramon thought, considering the number of times they've nearly lost him. If he was all elf, he'd be content to spend his time with his nose in a book. But he's human, too. Look at those eyes, Tanis. Look at him when he watches you ride off to adventure, to see wondrous sights he's only read about. Someday, Tanis, Caramon said softly, you're going to come home and find the cage empty. They trudged up the hill to where the blue dragon was dozing, its wings folded at its sides. What are you muttering about? Tanis asked Caramon grumpily. The half-elf was regarding the blue dragon with a grim face, keeping a close watch on it. The dragon was apparently not pleased at the smell of elf. It woke up instantly, its nostrils flared. Tossing its head in disgust, the beast snaked out its head and showed its fangs. Sarah Dunstan was a skilled dragon rider, however. With a sharp word of reprimand, she brought her mount swiftly, if sulkily, under control. Caramon climbed into the saddle first, then reached down from his rear seat in the two-person dragon saddle to haul up his friend with an easy swing of a massive arm. I was thinking to myself that your boy looks well, Caramon lied. Tanis squirmed to get into a halfway comfortable position, practically an impossibility. He would be forced to cling to the back of Caramon's seat, either that or sit in the big man's lap. Thanks, said Tanis, brightening, his proud gaze going to his son, who stood on the lawn, gazing at them with wide, almond-shaped eyes. We think he's getting better, if we just knew what was wrong with him. Not even revered daughter Chrysania can tell us. Maybe he just needs to spend some time in the fresh air. You should let him come visit us, Caramon suggested, my boys would take him out riding, hunting. We'll see, Tanis said politely in a not-on-your-life tone. Any signs of pursuit, mistress? Caramon scanned the skies. It had been near dawn when they'd arrived. The morning was well advanced now, the late autumn sun burning off night's chill. There was no sign of any other dragons that he could see. With luck they haven't missed me, Sarah said, though she looked worried. I'm a dragon trainer now. I am often gone exercising the mounts. I foresaw the need for this. She spoke a word to the dragon. The blue leapt into the air, propelled by its powerful hind legs, strong winds beating to lift it. They circled the castle once, in order for the dragon to get its bearings. Then they soared northward. We will arrive at the fortress after dark, Sarah told them. I regret the loss of this day, but it can't be helped, and what time we've lost we will hopefully make up. Will there be trouble with the Salamnic Knights? she asked Tanis anxiously. There will always be trouble with the Salamnic Knights, Tanis growled. He was in an ill humor, for which Caramon really couldn't blame him. After all, the half-elf might well be journeying to meet a son he never knew he had. But with Paladine's help, we'll get through it. The blue dragon glared round at them ferociously. Sarah spoke sharply, 
and the beast sullenly turned its head. I wouldn't mention that God's name again, she suggested quietly. None of them could think of anything to say after that. Talking was difficult anyway. They were forced to shout over the rush of air created by the dragon's powerful wings. And so they traveled in silence, flying far beyond Ancelon, far beyond known civilized lands, flying into darkness. Two days left. Two days to save a soul. Chapter 6 The Fortress of Storm's Keep My God, said Tannis grimly, taking care not to mention which god he was calling on to witness his astonishment. It's huge. What's the fortress called? Caramon asked Sarah. Storm's Keep, she answered. Her words were blown back to him by the violent wind, and it seemed to Caramon that it was the wind that spoke. Ariakin named it. He said that when those gates open, a storm will be unleashed on Ancelon that will destroy everything in its path. The fortress was located far north of Ancelon's mainland. Vast and forbidding, Storm's Keep was built on a large island of jagged rock. The glistening black walls of the stronghold were continually bathed by the spray from the crashing waves of the Syrian Sea. Watchfires burned on the tall, tooth-edged towers. The light served to guide the flight of dragons, whose wings were black silhouettes against the stars as the beasts wheeled and turned in the night sky. What's all the commotion? Caramon asked nervously. This isn't on your account, is it? Sarah reassured him. It's just the soldiers practicing night attacks. Ariakin says that was a mistake the dragon high lords made during the last war, fighting in daylight. The knights and their mounts are being trained to fight in the dark use the darkness to their advantage. Not a ship could get near this place, Tanis muttered, eyeing the white foam of the breakers smashing against the steep rock shoreline. The seas are far too rough to sail. Not even the minotaurs will venture this far north. One reason Ariakin chose this island. It is accessible only by dragon and by magic. At least no one should notice us in all the activity, said Caramon. Yes. Sarah agreed. This is what I was thinking. No one did notice them, or at least pay much attention to them. A gigantic red dragon shrieked at them in irritation when the smaller blue dived between the red and the tower under assault. The two dragons exchanged curses and snarls in their own language. The soldier atop the red added his own insults, which Sarah answered in kind. She held her course, her destination in sight cutting swiftly through the mock battle. Caramon, subdued and appalled, stared around in horror, awed by the strength in numbers and the daring skill of the black-armored paladins, who were easily routing the tower's defenders. And the dragons were not even using their most powerful weapon, their breath, which could spew acid, belch fire, cast lightning. Tannis's face was stern and grim, noting and attempting to impress on his mind every detail. Sarah ordered the dragon to land in a cleared area far from the main part of the fortress. This section of the compound was relatively quiet, in sharp contrast to the commotion going on at the battle site. These are the stables, she said in a low voice to Caramon and Tannis as they dismounted. Keep quiet and let me do the talking. 
Both men nodded, then hunched their shoulders deep into blue cloaks trimmed with black, which they wore over their own armor. Sarah had brought one with her, thinking she would only have to disguise Caramon. She gave Tanis her own cloak, first taking care to remove the black lily brooch. You mustn't touch it, she warned him. It has been blessed by the dark clerics. It might do you harm. You touch it, he said to her. I am used to it, she returned softly. The blue dragon settled down in the vast open yard, an enormous landing site located outside the fortress's walls. Beyond, a long row of stalls echoed with the frustrated, eager whinnies of horses. Excited by the sounds of battle, they wanted their turn. The knights are taught to ride and fight on horseback as well as dragonback, Sarah told them. Ariakon thinks of everything, doesn't he? Where do you keep the dragons? Tanis asked. Surely not here. No, the island isn't large enough. The dragons have homelands of their own. No one is quite certain where. They come when summoned. Hist! Caramon tugged on Sarah's sleeve. Company. A hobgoblin was running over to stare at them. Who's that? the goblin demanded suspiciously, holding up a torch that sputtered in the rain. No blues out tonight. What the? Ariakin's woman. Sarah took off her helm and shook out her hair. Lord, Ariakin, to you, worm, and I am no one's woman except my own. You do remember my name, don't you, Glob? Or has it slipped your pea-brained mind? The goblin sneered. What you doing out this night, S-S-Sarah? He hissed the name mockingly. And who be these two? Little piggy eyes had caught sight of Caramon and Tanis, though the men took care to stand well out of the torchlight. If I were you, I wouldn't ask too many questions, Glob, Sarah replied coolly. Lord Ariakin doesn't like underlings who meddle in his affairs. See to it my dragon has whatever she wants. You two, she didn't look behind her but motioned to Caramon and Tanis, come with me. The two walked past the goblin, who appeared somewhat daunted at the mention of Ariakin's affairs, and stepped back. But the goblin squinted intently as the two, shrouded in their cloaks, passed him. And at that moment, as ill luck or the Dark Queen would have it, a gust of wind swept round the stable yard and whipped back Tanis's long, graying hair to reveal a shapely, pointed ear. The goblin sucked in a shrill breath. Leaping over to Tanis, he caught hold of his arm and thrust the lighted torch in his face, so close that he nearly caught the man's beard on fire. Elf! the goblin shrieked, adding a curse. Caramon had his hand on his sword, but Sarah threw herself in between the big man and the goblin. Glob, you fool! Now you've done it. Ariakin will have your ears for this. Snatching the torch from the goblin's hand, Sarah hurled it into the mud. The flame sputtered and went out. What you mean? demanded Glob. What I do? He be a damn elf, a spy. Of course he's a spy, Sarah snarled. You've just unmasked one of my lord's double agents. You may have jeopardized the entire mission. If Ariakin hears of this, he'll have your tongue cut out. Me no talk, Glob returned sullenly. Lord man know that. 
You'd talk fast enough if some white-robed mage got hold of you, Sarah predicted grimly. Caramon had released his sword, but he stood large and threatening. Tanis flipped his cloak over his face and glowered balefully at the goblin. The goblin's face twisted in a scowl. He stared at Tanis with hatred. I don't care what you say. I'll go report this. It's your tongue, said Sarah, shrugging. Remember what happened to Blosh. And if you don't, go ask him. But don't hold your breath, waiting for him to answer. The goblin flinched. The aforementioned tongue flicked nervously over its rotting yellow teeth. Then, with another glare at Tanis, the goblin ran off. This way, said Sarah. Caramon and Tanis trudged after her. Both cast oblique glances at the goblin and saw the creature accost a tall man in black armor. The goblin, talking in a shrill voice, pointed at them. They all caught one word. Elf. Keep walking, Sarah said. Pretend you don't notice. I should have wrung the creature's neck, Caramon muttered, hand on his sword hilt. Nowhere to hide the body, Sarah said in cool, practical tones. Someone would have found the wretch, and there would have been the abyss to pay. Discipline is strict here. Ariakin's whore! The goblin's voice carried clearly. Sarah's lips tightened, but she managed a smile. I don't think we have much to worry about. Ah, there, see? Speak of Mistress Sarah with respect, Toad. The knight struck the goblin across the face, sent the creature sprawling backward into the stable muck. Then the knight strode on about more pressing matters. Sarah continued walking. This business about us being spies, that was fast thinking, said Tanis at her shoulder. Caramon, glancing around watchfully, brought up the rear. Not really, Sarah shrugged. I had already planned out my story, in case we were seen. Ariakin has been bringing his agents here, mostly to impress them, I think. A goblin made the mistake of blabbing that he recognized one. Ariakin had the creature's tongue cut out. That gave me the idea. Will the dragon say anything? I've told the dragon the same story. Flair is loyal to me, anyway. Blues are. They're not like reds. That knight seemed to respect you, Tanis began. Unusual for a whore, Sarah finished his sentence for him. That wasn't what I meant. No, but it's what you were thinking. Sarah walked on in bitter silence, her eyes blinking against the rain and spray that lashed her face. I'm sorry, Sarah, Tanis said, resting his hand on her arm. Truly. She sighed. No, I'm the one to apologize. You spoke only the truth. Lifting her head proudly, she turned to face him. I am what I am. I'm not ashamed. I would do it again. What would you sacrifice for your own son? Your wealth? Your honor? Your very life? Clouds scudded across the night sky. And suddenly, for one instant, Solinari, the silver moon, was free of them. Its bright light shone down on Storm's Keep, and for a strange instant, Tanis saw the future illuminated for him, 
as if Sarah's words had opened a door of a moonlit room. He had only a swift glimpse of danger and peril swirling about his frail sun like the driving rain, and then clouds blew back across Solinari, hiding it from sight, blotting out its silver light. The door shut, leaving Tanis disturbed and frightened. Ariakan didn't mistreat me, Sarah was saying somewhat defensively, mistaking the half-elf's shaken silence for the silence of disapproval. It was always understood between us that he would use me for his pleasure, nothing more. He will not take a wife, not now. He is over forty, married to war. All true knights should have only one true love, he says, and that true love is battle. He considers himself a father to the young paladins. He teaches them discipline and respect for their fellow knights, respect for their enemies. He teaches them honor and self-sacrifice. Such things he deems are the secrets of the Salamnic Knight's victory. The knights did not defeat us, Ariakan tells the young men. We defeated ourselves by selfishly pursuing our own petty ambitions and conquests instead of banding together to serve our great queen. Evil turns upon itself, quoted Tanis, trying to banish the terror that haunted him, the afterimage of the startling vision of his son. Once it did, said Sarah, but no more. These knights have been raised together from childhood. They are a close-knit family. Every young paladin here would willingly sacrifice his life to save his brother, or to further the Dark Queen's ambitions. Tanis shook his head. I find that hard to believe, Sarah. It is the nature of evil to be selfish, to look out for oneself to the detriment of others. If this were not so... He faltered, fell silent. Yes, Sarah urged him to continue. What if it were not so? If evil men were to act out of what they perceive to be noble cause and purpose, if they were willing to sacrifice themselves for such causes, Tanis looked grave. Then yes, I think the world might well be in trouble. He drew his cloak more closely about him. The chill, damp air made him shiver. But that just isn't the way things work, thank the gods. Reserve your judgment and your thanks. Sarah said in a soft, trembling voice. You haven't yet met Sturm's son. Chapter 7 Why Have You Never Asked? Sarah's house was a two-room dwelling, one of a number huddled against the outside walls of the fortress, as if the house itself was frightened of the crashing waves beating on the rocks and sought the protection of stolid walls. Tanis could hear the boom of the waves, crashing with monotonous regularity less than a mile away from where they stood. Salt spray blew against their cheeks, left brine on their lips. Hurry, Sarah said, unlocking the door. Steel will be off duty soon. She hustled them inside. The house was small, but snugly built, warm and dry. Furnishings were sparse. An iron pot hung in a large stone fireplace. A table and two chairs stood near the fire. Behind a curtain, in another room, was a bed and a large wooden chest. Steele lives in the barracks with the other knights, 
Sarah said, bustling about, hastily throwing meat and a few vegetables into the pot, while Caramon stirred up the fire. But he is permitted to eat his meals with me. Tanis, lost in his own gloomy reflections, still haunted by that vision of his son, said nothing. Sarah poured water in the pot. Caramon had a roaring blaze going beneath it. You two hide back there, behind the curtain, Sarah instructed, pushing them toward the bedroom. I don't need to warn you to keep quiet. Fortunately, the wind and the waves generally make enough noise that it's sometimes hard to hear ourselves talk. What's your plan? Tanis asked. In answer, Sarah removed a small vial from her pocket, held it up for him to see. Sleeping potion, she whispered. Tanis nodded in understanding. He was about to say something more, but Sarah shook her head warningly and drew the curtains shut with a snap. The two men, left in semi-darkness, backed up against a wall and stood opposite each other. In case the young man happened to thrust the curtain aside, all he would see at first glance was an empty room. Caramon discovered a tear in the fabric, which permitted him to see what was going on. Tanis found his own peephole. Both looked and listened in wary, tense silence. Sarah stood near the pot. She held the vial, unstoppered, in her hand. But she didn't pour it. Her face was pale. She bit her lip. Her hand shook. Tanis cast a look of alarm at Caramon. She's not going through with it, the half-elf's eyes conveyed warningly. Caramon's hand closed over his sword hilt. The two braced themselves, though neither had any very clear idea what they would do if she didn't. Suddenly, with a mutter that might have been a prayer, Sarah poured the contents of the vial into the stew pot. A thundering knock sounded on the door. She poured the vial into the heart of the blaze and wiped her hand hastily across her eyes. Come in, she called. Grabbing a broom, she began to sweep up water and mud that had been tracked across the floor. The door opened. A young man entered. Caramon nearly fell through the curtain in an attempt to see. Tanis waved at the big man, urged him back, but the half-elf himself had his eye plastered to the hole. The young man had his back to them. Taking off his wet cloak, he unbuckled his sword belt from around his waist. He leaned the sword, sheathed in its black scabbard, decorated with an axe, a skull, and the black lily, against the wall. He took off his breastplate, then removed his helm with a quick, impatient gesture that made Tanis's heart constrict with painful memories. He'd seen Kitiara remove her helm with that very gesture. Leaning over Sarah, the young man kissed her cheek and placed a hand on her shoulder. How are you, mother? You don't look well. Have you been ill? Sarah had trouble answering. She shook her head. No, just busy. I'll tell you later. You're wet to the bone, Steele. Go warm yourself. You'll catch your death. Steele untied a leather thong and shook out a quantity of dark hair. Both the hidden watchers recognized those dark curls. Kitiara had worn her hair short, her son wore it long, tumbling over his broad shoulders. As he stepped over to the fire and held his hands out to the blaze, the flames lit his face. His face. 
Caramon gave a great, wheezing gasp. What was that noise? Steele glanced around sharply. Caramon clapped his hand over his mouth and moved away from the curtain. Tanis, hardly daring to breathe, held perfectly still. It's the wind, rattling that broken window, Sarah responded. I fixed it the last time I was here, Steele said, frowning. He took a step toward the curtain. Well, the latch is loose again, Sarah said. Come, eat your dinner before it gets cold. You can't do anything to mend the latch while this storm lasts. Steele cast a last glance at the curtained room, then turned and walked back to the fireplace. Shifting his position slightly, Tanis could continue to see what was happening. Steele took a bowl and ladled out broth and meat. A puzzled look crossed his face. He sniffed at the bowl. Tanis shook his head and gestured toward the living room, warning Caramon to make himself ready. The two of them, catching the younger man off guard, might stand a chance. Lifting a spoon, Steele tasted the broth, grimaced, and tossed the bowl's contents back into the pot. Sarah, stricken, stared at him. What? What's the matter? Eat it before it gets cold, Steele repeated. He was fondly teasing, mimicking her voice. Mother, I'd have to set that stew out in the storm for it to get much colder. It's not cooked yet. I... I'm sorry, dear. Sarah was limp with relief, and so was Tanis. But he was worried about her. She was trembling, her face ashen. Steele couldn't help but notice. What is it, mother? He asked, once again serious. What's wrong? I heard you were out this night. What were you doing? I... I was ferrying a couple of spies. From the continent. The continent? Steele's dark brows came together in a frown. Spies? This is not safe, mother. You take too great a risk. I'll speak to Lord Ariakin. It's all right, Steele, Sarah said, regaining her composure. He didn't send me. I took the task upon myself. It was either that or let some stranger ride Flare. I couldn't permit that. You know how temperamental she can be. Turning her back on the young man, Sarah picked up the poker and stirred the fire. Steele watched her, his countenance dark and thoughtful. I find this talk of ferrying spies odd, Mother. I didn't think you were that committed to our cause. Sarah paused in her work. It's not the cause, Steele she said in a low voice, her eyes on the flames. You know that well. I do this for you. Steele's lip curled. His expression was suddenly hard and cold. Tanis, watching, knew that look. So did Caramon. The big man tensed to jump. You fairy spies for me, mother. Steele's tone was mocking, suspicious. Flinging the poker down on the stones, Sarah stood up and faced her son. Some day, Steele, you will ride to war. Whether I approve or not, I will do my part to keep you safe. She clasped her hands. Oh, my son, reconsider. Do not take these vows. Do not give up your soul. The young man was exasperated. We've gone over this before, mother. Sarah flung herself at him, caught hold of him. You don't mean it, Steele. I know you don't. You can't give your soul to her dark majesty. I don't know what you mean, mother. Steele returned. 
He wrenched himself loose from his mother's grip. Yes, you do. You have doubts. Her voice dropped low, and she glanced somewhat nervously out the window into the rain-lashed dawn. I know you do. That's why you've waited this long to take the vows. Don't let Ariakin pressure you. The decision is mine, mother. Steele's voice had a knife's edge. War is coming, as you say. Do you think I want to go into battle on foot, leading a party of hobgoblins, while men with half my ability fight on dragons, attain honor and glory? I will take the vows, and I will serve the Dark Queen to the best of my ability. As for my soul, it is my own, and it will stay that way. It belongs to no man, to no goddess. Not yet, Sarah said. Steele did not respond. Thrusting her aside, he stalked across the room, stood staring into the stew pot. Is that edible yet? I'm starving. Yes, said Sarah with a sigh. It is hot. Sit down. At her sorrowful tone, he looked around, grudgingly remorseful. You sit down, mother. You look exhausted. Respectful. Attentive. He led Sarah to a chair and held it for her. Sarah sank into the chair, then gazed at him with wistful eyes. The young man obviously found her silent pleading disturbing. He turned from her abruptly. Ladling out two bowls of soup, he placed one in front of each of them. Sarah stared at hers. Steele began to eat his with a healthy appetite. Tannis let out a relieved breath and heard Caramon do the same. How long would it take the potion to act? You're not eating, Steele observed. Sarah was watching him. Her hands beneath the table were curled into fists in her lap. Steele, she said in a strange voice, why have you never asked me about your father? The young man shrugged. Perhaps because I doubted that you would be able to give me an answer. Your mother told me who he was. Steele grinned, a crooked grin that brought back such vivid, painful memories. Tannis was forced to shut his eyes. Kitty Ara told you what she thought you wanted to hear, mother. It's all right. Ariakin has told me all about Kitty Ara. He told me about my father as well, Steele added offhandedly. He did. Sarah was astonished. The hands in her lap ceased to move. Well, not his name. Steele ate more stew. But everything else about him. Damn, this is a slow-acting potion, Tannis thought. Ariakin said my father was a valiant warrior, Steele continued. A noble man who died courageously gave his life for the cause he believed in. But Ariakin warned me that I must never try to learn my father's identity. It carries with it a curse that will fall on you if you come to know the truth. An odd thing to say, but you know what a romantic Ariakin is. The spoon fell from Steele's nerveless fingers. What the— Blinking, he put his hand to his forehead. I feel so strange. Suddenly his eyes focused. He drew in a breath. He tried to stand but swayed on his feet. What— have you done? Traitor! No, I won't let— Lurching forward, he reached out a shaking hand, then fell across the table, 
sending the bowls flying. He made one last feeble effort to rise, then collapsed there, unconscious. Steel! Sarah bent over him and brushed back the dark curly hair from the handsome, stern face. Oh, my son! Tanis hurried from behind the curtain, Caramon on his heels. He's out cold and will be for some time by the looks of it. Well, Caramon, what do you think? Tanis studied the young man's features. He's Kit's son, there's no doubt about that. Yes, you're right there, Tanis said quietly. The father? I don't know. Caramon's face wrinkled in intense concentration. It could be Sturm. When I first set eyes on him, I almost thought it was Sturm. I... I was fairly taken aback. But then, after that, all I saw was Kit. The big man shook his head. At least there's no elf blood in him, Tannis. Tannis had never truly suspected as much, and so he was surprised to find himself relieved and some part of him disappointed. No, he is not my son, that much is certain, Tanis said aloud to Caramon. I didn't think it likely, anyway. Ariakin might have taken the boy if he had elven blood. There are dark elves, after all, but I doubt it. Does Ariakin know the truth, do you think? Tanis looked at Sarah questioningly. He might. That would be one reason he's never told Steele his father's name, warned him not to ask, added some old wives' tale about the curse. Old wives generally know what they're talking about, Tanis said. Curses can take many forms. The young man's going to be in for an unpleasant shock, if nothing else. And he's going to be furious when he wakes up, Caramon pointed out. I doubt if he'll even listen to us, much less believe anything we tell him. This is hopeless, Sarah. Your plan won't work. It can. It must. I will not lose him. She glared at them fiercely. You saw him. You heard him. He is not totally given over to evil. He might change his mind. Please help me. Help him. Once we get him away from here, away from this dark influence, once he sees the high clerist's tower and remembers... Very well. We'll try. Tannis said. After all, we've come this far. I'll take one arm. This is my work, Tannis. Caramon shouldered him aside. Accustomed to carrying barrels of ale on his broad back, Caramon picked the young man up bodily and heaved him effortlessly over a broad shoulder. Steele's head and flaccid arms dangled in front, his long hair practically brushing the ground. Grunting, Caramon settled the young man more securely, then nodded. Let's go. Sarah flung a cloak over steel, grabbed a cloak for herself and her dragon rider helm. Opening the door a crack, she peered out. The rain had ceased for the moment, and the stars shone. The constellation of the Dark Queen, very near, gleamed with ominous brilliance. Storm clouds were massing again on the horizon. Sarah motioned, and they hastened out. They met no one until they neared the stables, then ran almost headlong into a knight in black armor. He glanced at Steele and smiled coolly. Another casualty? The young men threw themselves into their training this night. The clerics will earn their keep today. Saluting, 
the knight went about his business. The fortress was quiet, most of the men either resting after the knight's endeavors, or, as the knight had said, recovering from their wounds. Several dragons kept watch, perched atop the tall towers. Guards walked the battlements, probably more for the sake of training and discipline than because they actually feared assault. Ariakin had nothing to fear. Not now. Not yet. Few knew he was here, or what he plotted. But now I know, Tannis realized uneasily. I can carry the warning, except that it may already be too late. Traitor, Steele called Sarah. Is she? Has she really done that much damage to their cause? He thought back to what she'd said that very night. Her main goal was to keep Steele safe. To do that, she had served evil in silence for over ten years. She had broken that silence at last, but only out of desperation, only to save the young man from the final, irrevocable commitment. They reached the cleared area. Sarah put her hand to the brooch she wore on her breast. A blue dragon appeared in the sky, soaring toward them. If you can summon dragons, said Tannis, following up on his thoughts, you could have escaped this place long ago. You are right. Sarah hovered near steel, hanging limply in Caramon's grasp. But I would have had to go alone. He would have refused to come with me. I couldn't leave him here by himself. My influence is all that has kept him walking in the light. But you could have warned someone. The Knights of Salamnia might have been able to stop Ariakin. Tannis gestured at the mighty fortress. Now he is too strong. What would your knights have done? Sarah demanded. Come with their dragons, their lances. And what would that have accomplished? Ariakin and the knights would have fought to the death, all our deaths. No, I couldn't risk it. Back then I still had hope. Some day Steele might see how evil they are. He might agree to come with me. But now... She shook her head bleakly. The blue dragon landed on the ground near them. Flair was agitated at the sight of Steele's seemingly lifeless form, but Sarah quieted the dragon with a few softly spoken words of explanation. Flair still appeared dubious, but the blue obviously trusted Sarah and was extremely solicitous of Steele. The dragon never took its eyes off the young man, as Caramon secured him in the saddle then wedged himself in uncomfortably behind. Sarah approached the dragon. Tanis laid his hand over hers, halting her. We'll do what you ask, Sarah Dunstan. But the final decision will rest with steel. Unless you plan to lock him up in a cellar and throw away the key, he added dryly. This will work, she insisted. Tanis kept hold of her wrist. Sarah, if it doesn't, you've lost him. He'll never forgive you for this act, for betraying him, betraying the knighthood. You know that, don't you? She stared at the lifeless form of her son, her face as cold and unlovely as the black lily brooch. Tana saw then the true strength of the woman who had dwelt in this dark prison for so many dark years. I know, she said and pulled herself up onto the dragon.
Chapter 8 The High Clarist's Tower What have you done, mother? the young paladin demanded furiously. Awakening in the mountains, on a wind-swept promontory overlooking the High Clarist's Tower, Steel was groggy and disoriented at first, but realization, then anger, soon burned away the potion-induced mists. I want to give you a chance to reconsider what you are doing, Sarah told him. She did not plead or beg. She was not a pathetic figure. She was calm and dignified, and as the two faced each other, Tannis saw a resemblance that was not born in the blood, but sprang from long years of mutual respect and affection. Whatever clay the father and mother had brought into this world— it was Sarah who had formed and molded it. Steele swallowed any bitter recriminations or angry words. Instead, he turned his dark-eyed gaze on Tanis and Caramon. Who are these men? They are friends of your father, Sarah replied. So that's what this is about, Steele said, favoring both Tanis and Caramon with a cold and haughty stare. Magnificent in his youth and strength, retaining his pride and his composure when his head must have been swimming and his mind groping about in befuddled confusion, Steele won the grudging admiration of both men. The blue dragon sniffed the air, shook her head, and snarled. Silver dragons, favored by the knights of Salamnia, occasionally patrolled the skies above the tower. None could be seen in the skies this early— but the blue obviously scented something she didn't like. Sarah calmed Flair and led her into a large opening in the rocks, where the dragon would be at least partially hidden from view, the main reason she had chosen this particular landing site. The three men remained standing on the rock ledge, regarding each other in uncomfortable silence. Steele looked ill, was unsteady on his feet, but he would obviously sooner die than admit to weakness and so neither Tanis nor Caramon made any offer of assistance or comfort. Caramon nudged Tanis. Do you remember the autumn the war started, right after we'd left Solas with Gold Moon and Riverwind? We ran afoul of Draconians, and Sturm was wounded. Blood covered his face. He could barely stand, let alone walk, and yet he never said a word of complaint, refused to stop. Yes said Tannis quietly, looking at the young man. I remember. The memory was very vivid just now. Steele, aware that he was under scrutiny, if not discussion, turned proudly away. Tannis eyed the dark paladin's black armor, hideously adorned with symbols of death, and wondered gloomily just how he and the others were supposed to march into the high clarist's tower. And, as if this wasn't trouble enough, when Sarah emerged from the cave, Tanis knew at a glance that there was more. What is it, Sarah? What's wrong? Caramon cast a nervous glance at the sky. Not a patrol. Flair claims that we were followed, Sarah said in a low voice, not looking at Steele. That night, he must have suspected something. Great, just great, Tanis muttered. How many? 
Sarah shook her head. One blue with a single rider. He's not here now. He returned to the fortress once he found out where we were bound. But the Knights of Tachesis will come for us, said Steele with a cool and triumphant smile. He turned to Sarah. We can leave now, Mother, before any harm is done. Leave these two old fossils to their moldy memories. Sighing, he touched her cheek gently. I know what you're trying to do, Mother, but it won't work. Nothing will make me change my mind. Let us go back home. I'll see to it that Lord Ariakan doesn't blame you. I will tell my lord this mad scheme was my idea. A dare taken over wine and dice to spit on the high clerist's tower. Caramon made a rumbling sound, deep in his chest. Mind how you talk, boy, he growled. Your father's blood is red on those stones. His body lies inside. Steele was obviously taken aback. He regained his composure swiftly, however, and shrugged. So my father died in the assault. He died defending the tower, said Tanis, observing the young man intently, and the knighthood. He is honored among all Ancelon, Caramon added. His name, like Huma's, is spoken with reverence. That name is Sturm. Sturm Brightblade, said Sarah softly. And that is the name you bear, Steele. The young man had gone white. He stared at them all in disbelief that rapidly darkened to suspicion. I don't believe you. To tell you the truth, Tanis said, treading on Caramon's foot to warn him to keep silent, neither do we. This woman here, he gestured at Sarah, came to us with some wild tale of a liaison between your mother and a man who was our friend, a liaison of which you were the unwitting product. We refused to believe her, and so we told her to bring you here to prove it. Why? Steele demanded, sneering. What will this prove? Good question, Tanis. Caramon said under his breath. What will this prove? Tanis looked at Sarah for the answer. Take my son inside the tower, her eyes begged him. Let him see the knights. He will remember how he honored them in his childhood. I know he will. My stories will come back to him. I wish to Paladine I had your faith, mistress, Tanis said into his beard. He scratched his chin, trying to think up some excuse. This whole scheme was beginning to make less and less sense, becoming more and more dangerous. Aloud, he said the first thing that came to mind. There's a jewel that hangs around your father's neck. It was buried with him. The star jewel is magical. It was given to him by an elven queen, Alhanna Starbreeze. This jewel will... Will what? Steele mocked him. Dissolve when I enter the sacred chamber? It will tell us the truth, Tanis snapped, irritated by this arrogant youngster. Believe me, I don't like this any more than you do. What? What's that you say, Caramon? The elf jewel is just a love token. It won't— You're right, my friend, Tanis interrupted him loudly. It is a wondrous jewel, very magical— this is a trick, said Steele. He put his hand to his sword belt, forgetting that he'd taken off his sword. It was back in his mother's house. Flushing, he clenched his fists. 
You intend to take me prisoner. Once we get to the tower, you'll hand me over to the knights. That's your plan, isn't it, mother? No, Steele, Sarah cried. I never meant that, truly. Neither do these men. If you decide after all this to return to Storm's Keep, we will do nothing to stop you. The decision will be yours, Steele. I pledge you, by my honor and my life, that this is not a trick. I will guard you as if you were my own son, Tannis said quietly. Me too, nephew. Caramon nodded, then rested his hand on the hilt of his sword. You're my flesh and blood. You have my word. I swear by my own children, your cousins. Steele laughed. You'll fight in my defense. Thank you, but I doubt if the day will come when I need the services of two soft, middle-aged— He paused, suddenly struck by what he'd heard. Nephew. Cousins. His dark eyes narrowed. Who are you? Your uncle, Caramon Majer, Caramon replied with dignity, and this is Tannis Half-Elven. Steele eyed Caramon speculatively, curiously. My mother's half-brother. The dark-eyed gaze shifted to Tannis. And one of her lovers, according to Lord Ariakin. The young man's lip curled. Tannis's skin burned. It's over and done, past and gone, he reminded himself. Kitiara's been dead these many years. I love Lorana. I do, with all my heart and soul. I haven't thought of Kitten all these years. And now a flash of the eye, a turn of the head, her crooked grin. And it all comes back to me. My shame, my indiscretion, our youth, our joy. So you two are here to save me from myself, Steele was saying with bitter sarcasm. We only want to give you another option, said Tannis, shoulders hunched against the raw and biting wind, against the equally biting memories. As Sarah says, the final decision will be yours. That's why we fought the war, nephew, Caramon added, to ensure that people had choices. Nephew. Steele smiled, and it was meant to be a sneering and arrogant smile. But his lips trembled before he could tighten them. And there was, for the space of a faltering heartbeat, a glimpse of the face of an unhappy, lonely child. It was then, in that moment, that Tannis came to truly believe that this young man was Sturm's son. In that expression of bleak pride and anguish, Tannis saw again the young knight who had grown up during a time when the knights of Salamnia were themselves hated and reviled, when he'd been despised, made to feel ashamed of his birthright. Sturm had known what it was to be different from others. He had used his pride as a shield against hatred and prejudice. That shield of pride had been heavy to carry in the beginning, but Sturm had learned to ease pride's weight with forbearance and compassion. This dark paladin bore the shield's weight eagerly, willingly, and it had left cruel marks on him. Tannis opened his mouth, almost spoke his thoughts aloud. Then he reconsidered. No poor words of mine will penetrate that shield, that dark, cruel armor. He is Sturm's son, yes, but Kitiara's son, too. 
a child of unholy darkness and hallowed light. You owe both these gentlemen an apology, Steele, Sarah was sternly berating the young man. They have proven their mettle in battle, something you have yet to do. It is not for you to speak to them with disrespect. Steele's handsome face flushed at his mother's chiding, but he had been raised in a strict school. I do apologize, sirs, he said stiffly. I have heard of your exploits during the war. You may find this difficult to believe, he added with a grim smile. But we who serve Queen Takesis have been taught to honor you. Tanis did indeed find this hard to believe, didn't like to consider the implications. Then you have been taught to honor your father's deeds. If Sturm Brightblade is my father, Steele countered, I have been taught to admire his heroic death, one who stood alone against many enemies. And I have also been taught to honor the memory of my mother, Kitiara, the dragon highlord who slew him. That remark effectively silenced everyone. Caramon shuffled his big feet, coughed, and stared down at the ground. Tanis heaved an exasperated sigh and ran his hand through his hair. A curse if Steele found out who his father was. So Ariakan had told the young paladin. Tanis was beginning to believe it. He couldn't for the life of him see how anything good could come out of this unhappy situation. Steele turned his back on them all. Walking over to the cliff's edge, he gazed down with interest on the high clarist's tower. I'm sorry, Sarah, Tanis said in an undertone. I'll say this for the last time. Your scheme isn't going to work. Nothing we say or do is going to make any difference to him. Steele is right. The two of you should leave now. Go back to your home. The woman's shoulders slumped. She closed her eyes and put a trembling hand to her lips. Tears slid down the careworn face. She couldn't speak, but nodded her head. Come on, Caramon, Tanis said. We've got to get off this mountain before dark. Wait a minute, Steele said abruptly. He turned around, then stalked over to stand in front of Sarah. Putting his hand on her chin, he turned her face to the sunlight. You're crying he said softly, and there was wonder in his voice. All these years I've never seen you cry. He would have known how to defend himself against a battalion of knights, but his mother's tears disarmed him completely. Do you truly want me to go through with this folly? he asked, frustrated, helpless, bewildered. Sarah's face brightened. Eagerly she clung to him. Oh, yes, Steele. Please, do this for me. Tanis and Caramon stood silently by, waiting. Steele gazed at her, his face a battlefield, revealing the struggle waging within. Then, with a dark sidelong glance at the two older men, he said coldly, I will accompany you, sirs, for her sake. <laughs>